Good evening, everybody. Let me try that again. That was hurtful to me, my feelings. There's good evening, everybody. All right. Before we start tonight, thank you, Ken. Thank you. <laughs> um, I wanted to say, uh, I wanted to thank John Durig. Uh, this is his last night. He's going to be able to help us leading on Sunday nights. And so I just want to thank you, John, for always being here, always being faithful to this and and being willing to do it. Thank you so much. And, and please, please give him a hand for that. Thank you. All right. Oh, good. All right. All right. <laughs> All right. So the Bible could be described as a love story, the ultimate love story. It begins and ends with a wedding. And every marriage since Adam and Eve's in Genesis 2 points, albeit imperfectly, to the ultimate wedding at the end of history between the last Adam and his bride, the church, Revelation 19. Those, those are our markers to understand the depths of what God is saying in Hosea. The first marriage, how it's described, what it signifies, and then the last marriage. You and I live in between. And human marriage is founded on the premise that woman was made out of the very flesh of the man, meaning that the marriage, the marriage is the reuniting of what was originally and literally one flesh, right? Where there is a marriage, there is one from two. It's a deeper union than any other union in creation. God joins one woman and one man together mystically so that they belong to one another and to one another only. That's the vision of human marriage we're given on the opening pages of Scripture. That is covered on the opening pages of Scripture, which provides the necessary basis for us to understand the covenant nation's relationship with Yahweh as the story unfolds in the rest of Scripture, the covenant nation being Israel and then finally the church. That one fleshness from which all humanity comes is the basis for everything that follows. But that original idea for marriage also provides the framework we need to understand spiritual whoredom on the part of God's covenant people. On the pages of Hosea, Israel had not merely failed to keep a list. Israel had committed adultery and broken the marriage covenant with God who had betrothed himself to her as her husband. That is how God describes her sin. So Israel's desire to align herself with other kingdoms in the world for protection and prosperity and her worship of other gods, although she kept Yahweh as one of those gods, is described by her husband. Those two things are described by her husband in relational terms. It's a relational issue. God uses terms of lust and whoredom and prostitution and adultery. God describes himself in Hosea as a betrayed husband. But even more shocking, God is a husband who chose to be in this position, who chose to love and pursue a bride that would cheat on him. He chose to make himself a victim of her adultery and the way that literally affects God's heart and literally brings God pain, if we can even fathom that, as he describes it, is displayed for us on these pages. I've been blown away 
to be honest with you, in studying for this series by how personally God presents Himself in the book of Hosea. Most of my life in preparation for ministry had to do with theology proper and hermeneutics and all that, but as time goes on, what, what really moves me is the way God presents Himself, not the way I paint Him through my studies. Because the main point of Hosea, and so the main point of our series, is not this grievous adultery. It's the unfathomable, utterly relentless love of this betrayed husband. And in chapter 1 tonight, God promised through His prophet Hosea that although Israel had committed adultery by forsaking His love for and rule over them, He would one day reunite Himself to her. God's promise to pursue a bride who betrays Him, beloved, is the foundation of our hope for salvation. Tonight and always, let me pray for us. Father, I thank You for the time You've given us tonight. Please watch over me. Watch over my mind. Help me speak, Father. Help everyone be able to hear. And I ask and pray this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let me read the first nine verses of Hosea chapter 1. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beeri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Dibliam, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. She conceived again and bore a daughter, and the Lord said to him, Call her name No Mercy, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. When she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, Call his name not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Hosea is the first book of the twelve in our Bibles. It's the first one, the minor prophets. He's actually the third chronologically, but first in sequence. Remember, the minor prophets are not called that because they're less important than Isaiah or Jeremiah and Ezekiel. They're just much shorter in length. Uh, the twelve were originally compiled into a single book as their themes were generally connected or even singular sometimes. But the main reason for the writings of these prophets was the sin that increasingly characterized both kingdoms in the 8th century and later. Hosea prophesied mainly to the northern kingdom of Israel before it was destroyed in 723 B.C. 722-723 B.C. He ministered during the reign of Jeroboam II in Israel from about 760 to 730 B.C. He was probably a contemporary of the prophet Amos. Something important to realize at the outset, however, this is very important, is that when Hosea prophesied, Israel, the northern kingdom, Israel, was at its political zenith under Jeroboam II. So Israel was simultaneously prosperous and not being blessed by God. 
not enjoying God's favor. Those two things were happening at the same time. So from their perspective, the ministry of Hosea came out of nowhere with this this crazy indictment of adultery. And I think it might help us to get some history under our belts to understand where Israel was when Hosea began to prophesy. So just bear with me for just a few minutes. Remember, King Solomon, David's son, was succeeded by his son Rehoboam. He extended against the council of wise men. He extended Solomon's slave labor program, leading to a rebellion by a man named Jeroboam. And as a result, in 930 B.C., the 12 tribes divided into two kingdoms. Right, The 10 northern tribes formed a separate nation under Jeroboam I, while the two southern tribes of Judah and Benjamin remained under the rule of David's dynasty. During the time of this division, the northern kingdom was called Israel, sometimes called Ephraim, as we'll see here, after their largest tribe. Their capital was Samaria. The two southern tribes were called Judah after their larger tribe, and their capital was Jerusalem. Jeroboam in the north didn't want his people traveling down to the temple in Jerusalem, probably, where they'd be subject to Judah's propaganda, if you will. So he made two golden calves, one at Dan to the north, one at Bethel in the south of the northern kingdom. These man-made idols became the focus of Israelite worship. So while Judah, the southern kingdom, continued to be ruled by David's dynasty, the northern kingdom all during this time kept having coups. All five kings after Jeroboam the first, the, the, the first Nadab, Baasha, Elah, Zimri, and Tibni, all come to power through violence, through bloodshed. And none of them did anything really to stop the idolatry in the kingdom. Eventually, a king named Omri set up a dynasty, but it was cruel and wicked and succeeded by his son, a name we all know very well, Ahab. Well, one of Ahab's palaces was in a town called Jezreel. That's where, when he wanted to claim this vineyard for himself, that he had its owner, Naboth, if you remember that story, falsely accused and murdered because Naboth wouldn't sell it to him. That act became the symbol for the abuse, abuse of power in Israel's history. That's First Kings 21. And Ahab had just a honey of a wife named Jezebel. That very name was synonymous with idolatry and spiritual adultery. Those two, Ahab and Jezebel, made Baal worship the state religion in the northern kingdom in Israel. That was opposed, you can read about that, by two non-writing prophets, Elijah and Elisha. Ahab was succeeded by his sons Ahaziah and Joram. But then God raised up an army officer named Jehu to bring down the house of Omri in Israel. So he took power through bloodshed, even though he was the instrument of God. And at that palace in Jezreel, Jehu slaughtered all the leading figures of Ahab's family, and then he had the severed heads of all 70 of his grandsons brought to Jezreel, making the name Jezreel synonymous in 2 Kings 9 and 10 with bloodshed, right? Murder, violence. Jehu was succeeded by his son, his grandson, and his great-grandson, Jehoahaz, Jehoash, and Jeroboam II, so that four generations of his family ruled over Israel, But as you might guess, his sons were no better than Omri or Ahab. Jehu removed Baal worship, but he just replaced it with other forms of idolatry. So it wasn't long before the fertility cult of Baal, with all its practices, made a comeback on an even larger scale. And Jehu's great-grandson, Jeroboam II, the king of Israel, when Hosea began to prophesy, he ruled for over 40 years. And it was a bit of a golden age, probably second only to the era of 
David and Solomon. And it's into that that we read verse 1, the word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beeri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. That was the political atmosphere when God called Hosea as a prophet. There was material prosperity, political peace. So surely God was blessing Israel. Those things probably made it out of sight, out of mind. No, prosperity had led to spiritual complacency, which had led to spiritual infidelity. And God is about to bring it to an end. He's about to end it. There's a threat growing to the north, an empire called Assyria. We read in verse 2, When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So right away, the political power of Assyria was not the real problem for Israel. The spiritual state of Israel is the real problem for Israel. The real threat was God's coming judgment. Three times in that text, God uses the word whoredom. We're, we're not meant, we can't make light of this. We're not meant to take whoredom as a, um, you know, some, some kind of throwaway label that, that paints Israel's sin in a certain passing light. God's explanation of Israel's sin was that she has become an adulterous wife who has been unfaithful to him. And God's strategy for communicating his word is that he calls his prophet to marry, literally, a promiscuous wife. God wants the message to be painfully clear, literally. We read in verse 3, So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Deblium, and she conceived and bore him a son. So Hosea's obedience is immediate. He marries a wife of whoredom named Gomer, and they have a son. Let me read 4 through 7 again. And the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. She conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, Call her name No Mercy, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. So God told Hosea and Gomer to name their first son Jezreel. I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel. I think the house of Jehu here represents Israel as a whole, and Jezreel has become a byword for Bloodshed. God is going to bring the kind of bloodshed for which Jezreel is known, not only on the house of Ahab, but on Israel as a whole. It's, it's like what happened to the word gate after Watergate. If you wanted, it, it got that moniker. If you wanted to make anything a scandal that was a big deal, you'd add the word gate to the end of it, right? Tax gate or I don't know. But that's the way Jezreel, that's what happened to that word in Israel. What Jehu did to Israel will now happen to his own house because of his later sins and the sins of his line. It's a strange foreign name to you and I, but in their ears it meant bloodshed when they heard it. That's what he named his son. It'd be like naming his son here Antietam, one of the bloodiest battles of the Civil War, or or even Auschwitz. It just would have such a 
horrible connotation to it. And Jezreel is almost a pun. It even sounds like Israel in English. You can hear that. You're not Israel. You're Jezreel. You're bloodshed. God will break their bow. That is, He'll break their military strength, their political might. He'll destroy it. The whole house of Israel, not just Jehu's descendants. Then they have another son, a daughter that God told them to name Lo-Ruhamah, which means no mercy. So imagine that. There goes that little girl. What's that little girl's name? That's right. No mercy. No compassion. God will no longer have mercy on and forgive Israel. Every time Hosea looked at his little girl, that's what he saw. That's what he remembered. I will no more have mercy on this nation, Hosea. Israel has cheated on God and he is done with her here. The southern kingdom of Judah is different in verse 7. God will save Judah, but he won't do it by another bow. He won't do it by sword or war or by cavalry and soldiers. Those aren't the things that save what they've chosen to trust in. It's God's mercy that saves. And in verses 8 through 9 we read, When she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, Call his name not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. The son's name was Lo-Ami, not my people. Hosea walks out with his baby in his arms to show to everybody and said to everyone, this is not my son. That's his name. Not my people. That was his name because God said Israel was not his people. And he was not their God. So this is where things stand when the prophet Hosea is called of the Lord, that there's divorce. There's divorce. Years before, God had told Moses in Exodus 6-7, You shall be my people, and I shall be your God. That promise is at the heart of the story of the whole Bible, but not anymore. Now the promise is in reverse. You are not my people, and I am not your God. So the nation that God had found writhing in its blood in Egypt and, and made His own, who enjoyed the presence and special favor of God are alone with a superpower's army bearing down on them. Get that image in your mind. You take your little boy out to play, a wild dog comes charging at him, and you walk away and leave him. And as the dog pounces on him, you cry over your shoulder, you're not my child, and I'm not your father. God doesn't play. That's what happened. Just a few years later, the Assyrians came crashing down on Israel, the northern kingdom, and wiped it off the map. Literally. The capital of Samaria was completely destroyed. The nation disappeared. What remained is a, was a small group mixed with other nations practicing some hybrid version of their original religion and all those other new religions. A people who would later be called the Samaritans that the Jews hated so much. Why make Hosea endure the pain of an adulterous marriage? Why ruin the lives of these children with horrible names? Names carried much more weight back then than they do now. Why? Because it's about to be too late. The message was embodied by Hosea and his family so that every time he mentioned their names, the message of God through his prophet was proclaimed. God was forcing the people to listen every time Hosea opened his mouth. So this is it, right? I mean, this is the end of the story. We're done. God walks away. 
somehow know. It, it, it's, it's at this point that Hosea takes a turn. And Hosea will do this several times throughout this book. A turn that confronts us with something much harder to grasp, if we're honest, and that's grace. We can all understand the divorce here, so to speak, can't we? We, we, we can get that. Who among us, in a literal marriage, would put up with what God had put up with? So we can understand that. We get that. What we don't get, what we shouldn't expect, is this. Yet, in verse 10, yet, I color code my Bible so that I can study better. And each color has a certain meaning. And red is anything that has to do with redemption, salvation. And the word yet is circled in red in verse 10. Yet, the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea. Shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together, and they shall appoint for themselves one head, and they shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. Say to your brothers, you are my people, and to your sisters, you have received mercy. God promises the restoration of his people. He will keep the promise he made to Abraham in Genesis 13 and 15 and 22. Yes, it's threatened by the coming judgment of God. Hosea's generation will be wiped out, but a remnant will remain. And from that remnant, God will restore His people. And notice the language here. God has no people that are not His children. You see that? See, He's a father, first and foremost, who has children. He's not an emperor who has citizens of the state, of the empire. They're children. All the metaphors for God's covenant people are relational. God promises a renewal of the covenant. That relationship, that closeness that it implies will be renewed. God promises a reconciliation of the divisions between Israel and Judah. They will be gathered together. Remember, from the time Rehoboam, uh, of Rehoboam, the nation had been divided between north and south. God will finally answer the question, which people are His, north or south? Which nation? Which kingdom? God promises to gather them, reform them. We need to remember in that when Jesus comes calling Himself the bridegroom all the time. He will expand the invitation to this great banquet of salvation to include Gentiles. God promises here to reinstate the king. One nation requires one king, and he will indeed come from the family of David. God promises what I think is a spiritual fulfillment to the land promise. The original meaning of Jezreel was not bloodshed. That wasn't the original meaning of that word. The original meaning was God plants. One day, Jezreel will no longer be associated with bloodshed, but with the fact that God will plant His people in the true promised land, the new heavens and the new earth, where they will flourish forever and never die, never divide. So the story is going to go on. The coming judgment will not be the end. But while a faithful few will survive this judgment, 750 years or so from this moment, there would only be one faithful Israelite left. Only one. One last chance. 
And he's going to get hung on a tree outside Jerusalem. Bearing the rejection of God's people, the full judgment of God's wrath. And when he died, where's the hope? There's no one left that is able to keep the covenant. That's able to hold up their side of this marriage faithfully. But then God raised him from the dead. And now there's a new people of God. That's the way the New Testament sees the people of God as centered in the one new man, the body of the Lord Jesus Christ from every nation. It is this Jesus who sent His Holy Spirit and acts that His disciples would be witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Judea was the new name for Judah. Samaria was the new name for Israel. In other words, the Jews were the descendants of the southern kingdom of Judah. The Samaritans were the people that resulted from the mixing of those Israelites who were left in the land with the immigrants from other nations. But now through the gospel, the message that contains and fulfills all of God's promises in Christ, believing Jews and Samaritans, believing Judeans and Israelites are united in Christ just as Hosea promised. In John eleven forty nine to 52 the high priest unwittingly prophesied precisely that Jesus would fulfill Hosea's promise through the cross, that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad, all of them. And this is fulfilled, begins to be fulfilled in the book of Acts and beyond when the gospel goes to Judea and Samaria, to Asia and to Europe, and then to the Americas thousands, millions, so that the true Israel, a holy and purified bride from every nation, is united to Him, somewhere along the line, this promise made its way personally to you. To you. This is where you and I are. This is your place in this story. The fulfillment of Hosea 1.10 is the conversion of Gentiles along with the Jews so that the bride of Christ will be one. Israel, in her coming exile, is a picture of humanity in exile. The plight of the Jews, the punishment and judgment for sins from which she cannot save herself, is the plight of the world. That's why Paul brings in the world in Romans 9 when he quotes Hosea. When Israel stepped out of the covenant and became not my people... What has she become? She became Gentile. And there's no way back in by covenant keeping or through works of the law or through ethnic identity. All of that is forfeit. Israel could not become God's people again simply by being Israel. They're in the same boat as the Gentiles. The only route back is the mercy of God. The only hope for restoration is that God would not hold the breaking of the covenant against them. That God would not hold our sins against us. Our hope is not that we can become sinless. Our hope is that God won't hold our sin against us. Beloved, do we understand that the only hope anyone, Jew or Gentile, has is that somewhere deep down in the heart of God, there is mercy that will triumph over judgment. Our only hope tonight is that there is a love that is more relentless than our craving for sin. Our only hope tonight is that grace is going to outlast our iniquity. The only hope tonight is that grace is going to outlast our iniquity. That's the fact Hosea was ultimately given to proclaim. One day God would execute judgment without mercy on Jesus. 
and offer mercy without judgment through Jesus. At the cross, Jesus experienced the full wrath of God, and as a result, His people are fully forgiven. The story proclaimed in Hosea is at the heart of the storyline of the Bible that a betrayed husband will keep his promise and remain forever faithful to his adulterous wife. Eventually, we have to see our sinfulness for what it is, for what it continues to be. By the time the book of James was written, what, over 800 years or so after Hosea, God's people were still being called adulterous people. Adulteresses. Because that's what an adultering wife is. An adulteress, to be precise, because even now, it's James 4.4, even now, our passions are still at war within us. We're conflicted. We're not loyal. From God's perspective, all our sinfulness, all of it, reveals a lustful craving for other husbands that will not go away. So there's no human cure for the wrath of our husband. None. We, we can't make any promises that we'll never go out on him again. We can't do that. After like the 900th time, why would he believe us? Humanity was intended to have one Lord, one God, and we spurn him for a list of other lovers that is not only too big to compile... But not one thing on the list is close to his beauty or the worth of our true husband. How do we make our way back? Right? How do you make your way back when it's adultery? No betraying spouse gets to set the terms of restoration. Right? How do we get rid of all the baggage of adultery? All the awkwardness, the fallout. How can this marriage ever be restored? Not just to some polite standoff, but to the joyful, unending celebration of love that is painted for us in Scripture at the end of time. How do we get from here to there? How does a pure husband with an unendingly adulterous bride accomplish that? Listen, to betray the marriage covenant is awful. And if that's how God sees our sinfulness, if our sins against our covenant husband are like adultery, how can we ever expect to be truly forgiven? Even if you were really sorry, how do you get over, do you understand, how do you get over the baggage and the awkwardness that come with adultery? Do we have any sense of the amount of mercy and forgiveness we need in order to be reconciled to our husband. I'm overwhelmed by grace. I, I wish, it's going to be a weird thing to say, I wish I didn't need it so much. I don't mean that because I'm overwhelmed by it that I'm always a faithful bride. That's not what I mean. I'm not. I think, I hope, I'm overwhelmed by it because I keep needing it and God keeps dishing it out. Like this, this can't be overstated. It can't get old. Right? I mean, once we see sin, all sin, for what it is, there's no comfort in whether they're big sins or little sins. It's all adultery. It's all adultery. Th- think of a, a real, a, a human, sorry, a human marriage. A one night stand, that maybe, you know, you just, maybe you, you make a mistake. 
is not that much less hurtful than an ongoing relationship with someone other than your spouse. Right? It's, it's not like either can be brushed under the rug in a marriage. All sin is adultery. What makes sin sin is, is who you're sinning and I'm sinning against, right? When the husband is this worthy of our undivided affection, even the smallest slip is adultery. Did you know that's what God is saving us from every single day? Do we realize that? That every time we sin, we're going out on Him? And every time we repent, He takes us back? God's promise here in one ten to two one is a display of amazing grace. Amazing is too small of a word here. Think about this for a minute when you read those verses. Why tell a spouse given to cheating that eventually all will be well? Why tell her that? That eventually you are going to restore the relationship. It will happen. Couldn't they just use that as an excuse to live as they please? Yeah, and they will. We all do. We all do. But what was the world created for? Why is this story here? Why does it go this way? Why are these the words God uses? What is meant to be exalted in human history? Where is the spotlight of humanity and time supposed to go? This method, God's method in one ten to two one of a preemptive promise of restoration exalts the glory of His grace as so superior to and stronger than my sin, we literally don't have words for it. If my husband will take me back no matter what I do, I'll cheat as much as I want. Now there's a chance you can take it that way. Obviously, and we do. We don't like to say it in those terms. That's exactly what we do. We don't normally walk into sin blind and ignorant. We're going to do what we want to do, and we're going to hope that when we're done, we can say we're sorry. That That's normally how it goes. Now, the point is not to advocate or exalt that in any way, shape, or form. We should not continue in sin so that grace may abound. But we all continue in sin. One way or the other. We, we can't get around that, beloved. Read Romans 7. We can't stop. So think for a minute. If that's what's really going on, that even when we want to stop, we still struggle. If God saves then, if He is that faithful, that constant, just try to fathom when all is said and done, how much worship will be welling up in you, how much worship He is worthy of from the ones He redeems. And that, beloved, is the goal in Scripture for God. The praise of His glorious grace forever. Since the story is actually about the husband and not the bride, all will be well. All will be well. Since the point is to exalt His grace, He's going to show amazing grace. That's just the way it is. Should we continue to sin? No. Is it sinful for us to continue to sin? Yes. Do we want to jam our finger in our husband's eye and spurn his grace? No. But we do every time we sin. 
the way that God describes what sin is here is to magnify what grace is. The story is the story of a husband who loves his wife even though she's like that. The storyline of the Bible is not an adulterous wife becomes virtuous. It's a husband so virtuous he continues to love a desperately adulterous wife. That's the storyline. That's at the heart of the Bible. This is the promise of a betrayed husband. This is the power of relentless, redeeming love. That those without mercy would receive mercy. That those with names and history surrounded by guilt and death would be given new names surrounded by life and shouts of deliverance. From the one they've spurned. From the one they've betrayed. And all that is true because a betrayed husband will never break his marriage vows. Believe in Him. Worship Him, beloved. Realize what salvation is. And for every look, Spurgeon is right in this, for every look you take at yourself, for every look you and I take at our adultery, take 10,000 looks at Jesus or it will destroy you. God gets over all of it through Jesus Christ. Again, He doesn't brush anything under the rug. He faces it full on for what it is. Adultery against... When God is the husband, adultery requires the cross. That's your husband dying for you. That's what that is. This is Hosea. This is where it will take us. This is what we'll see again and again, as we make our way through its pages. The front will be open tonight. If you need to come and pray, I'll be here. I'm happy to start this study with you. I'm thankful. The prophets are very powerful. Let me pray. Father, I thank you so much for your word. Father, I thank you for your truth. God, I praise you for your relentless love. I thank you for this image that we have here of of water bursting out of the desert. That's a nice metaphor for salvation, for love, for relentless love, lifting us up, taking us upward. I praise you, Father. I pray that we would be able to focus on this, to remember these things. I pray for the souls of everyone here, Father. These are my brothers and my sisters. They're my family. And I pray, Lord, that you would take care of them in every way. I pray, Father, that we continue to understand the Bible more and better. I'm in as much need of that as anyone else in the room. I pray, Father, that every person here that believes would be filled with the shouting testimonies of the Holy Spirit that they are a child of God. I pray, Father, that those that might be here that don't truly believe or see their need, would be enabled by your illuminating Holy Spirit to see it. That they would be convicted of their lack of belief in Jesus and be saved, Father, as they believe upon you by grace through faith. Lord, help us in this study, I ask and pray in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.